Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Order and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Aho. Later on, we'll hear about one of New Zealand's premier fossil sites and the threat facing it. But first up, Niwa freshwater ecologists are trying to solve one of the great mysteries of the natural world. Where do our longfin eels go to breed? Worldwide, there are 16 species of temperate eels that live in continental waters such as lakes, rivers and estuaries. Our endemic longfin eels are the largest and longest lived of these. They all breed only once at the end of their life. They all spawn far out in the open ocean. And we are only just starting to find out where all of them go on their once-in-a-lifetime breeding migration. I'm off to the Waikato to join Paul Franklin and colleagues, including international expert Kim Aristrup. A local fisher has caught some big female longfin eels, and it's time to tag them and send them on their way. We've just come out to the Antid Eel Processing Company in Tokofata, and we're about to start attaching our PSAT tags to our longfin eels. Now this is going to be amazing because you are trying to solve a mystery. Yes, that's right. We've had a long-standing mystery over where our eels actually go to spawn. And this has been a challenge worldwide with all the freshwater eel species that a lot of people have wondered about for a very long time. For some of our species we have a bit of an idea of where they go, but particularly for our New Zealand longfin eel, we're still need to find that final bit of information to help us nail down exactly where they go. So people have tried to do this before but quite a long time ago? Yes, so the original work was done back in the early 2000s. One of my colleagues, Don Jellyman, tried to do this and he had some success with tracking some of the eels up towards the area of Tonga and that's where the sort of general idea that our eels go there for spawning comes from, was from that early work. But in those days, the tags were about double the size that they are now, and it was quite an experimental method at that stage. So we had quite a few of the tags dropped off early and things like that. So what we're hoping now is that with the smaller tag sizes and a bit more experience of how to attach the tags that we'll have a bit more success with getting a few more of these eels out to their spawning grounds and actually be able to track them the whole way there. My name is uh, Kim Orstrup. Yeah, I'm a professor at DTU Aqua in Denmark and I work with migratory fish species. 
So I gather you've done quite a lot of work putting tags on eels. I have done tags on a lot of eels around the world, yes. So far we have tagged six different species and this is going to be number seven. So tell me about the tags that you're putting on. The tags is a so-called pop-up satellite archival tag. And it essentially consists of some sensors that measures temperature, depth and light and stores them. And at a predetermined time, it releases itself from the eel and it rises to the surface like a cork. And the antenna will then transmit the data to a satellite and their data will then be relayed down to a ground station where we can get, get hold of them. How big are the tags? The tags is about 40 grams, but they're floating, so that doesn't really matter. They're about 12 centimeters long and they have a diameter about two and a half centimeters. How do you attach a tag to an eel which is long and slippery? That is uh, certainly a challenge and it has been for many years and we started many years ago and what we do now is that we attach them with three points where we just nip the skin so it's like a piercing and based on that little three piercings we actually have a string from those up to the tag and that's how it's essentially sitting like some sort of backpack. We want to make sure the tag stays on the eel, but we also want to have the minimal impact on the eel while we do it. So has this yielded good results for you with some of those other species you've been looking at? Uh, it is still relatively new, but there is a lot of things that we have learned because so far up to when we started using these tags on the eel, we actually did, didn't know anything about what they do out in the ocean. And it is, of course, in biology, at least in animal biology, one of the remaining mysteries is what the eels actually do once they leave the coasts anywhere in the world and where they end up and then how they spawn. And we're still struggling to find out. Tell me about the long-thinned eels. The one we're working on here is the Anguilla Diffenbachi. It's the largest temperate eel species, probably also one of the most interesting eel species because it has this long life. They can be up to 100 years old. And essentially, they start somewhere unknown as four millimeter small leaf-like larvae that drift along the ocean currents. At some point, they metamorphose into what we call glass eels. So they actually look like an eel, but they're completely opaque. You can look through them. They have two black eyes. That's all you can see. They'll then run up the rivers and stay there for a number of years and grow up to these massive sizes, maybe up to 20 kilos, some of the last you have here. And then for this one, it then migrates down out into the ocean and disappears and we have to follow it back to the spawning area. And specifically for this one, you have here in Brazil, it's an endemic species. So you only have it here in the whole world. So what species do you have in Denmark? We have the European eel. So in the Atlantic, we have two temperate eel species, the European and the American eel. And they spawn in almost the same spawning area down in the Sargasso Sea. So have you pinpointed where in the Sargasso Sea they're going to? The three temperate eel species, the Japanese, the American and the European, are the best studies in the world. And we have an area where they're spawning. But that has been done through a different kind of research, through extensive sampling of these small larvae out in the ocean. It's quite a large area. We are talking about several hundred thousand square kilometers that's been delimited. But it was done back in the 1910, 1920s. It took about 25 years to sample lavas across the Atlantic to find out where the smallest lava were that would then sort of logically lead to where that's where the spawning site is. But we don't have such data on a lot of the other species, including this one. So we're trying to just flip the bucket and try it the other way around and try and follow them out there.
it is prohibitively expensive to send out ships if you want to do a similar stuff today. It looks like you're getting close to getting your eels ready. Yeah, we have one in the anesthetic waiting for it to calm down so we can take it and then we'll, we'll borrow it for five minutes and we'll put it back in the water. So I'm actually standing outside looking into a room where they're about to put the tags on the eels and there's lots of fresh water pouring through to keep the eels all aerated so it's really loud. So there's a team of them working on the eel. They've quickly weighed it, it weighed 4.9 kilograms and they're popping it into a long thin cradle and everyone's gathered around uh, and the process is about to start. Half an hour later and two eels have been tagged. They're much longer and thicker than my arm and are pure muscle. So what length and what weight are they coming in at? So those first couple were just over 1.2 metres long and just under 5 kgs in weight. So we've got a couple a bit smaller than that and a couple a bit bigger than that as well. How old will they be? It's really difficult to know for certain, but these girls migrate in and live to quite a long age. That average time, they say, is around 40 years at migration, but that can range by, you know, 10 or 20 years. Are the males migrating at the same time? The males often migrate a bit earlier, and they certainly migrate at a smaller size as well. So the males often migrate around 50 centimetres, something like that. Uh, whereas these big females hang around for a lot longer in fresh water, feeding up and getting much bigger. So it's really only the females that are big enough to carry a tag? Yes, yes, at this stage. The tags are gradually getting smaller, but still, these big females are far better positioned to take those tags than the smaller fish. The fisher who caught the eels has come by to see the tagging in action. Oh, my name's Bob. I'm a commercial eel fisherman. I've been fishing commercially since 1972. Now, I, I get that you found these gorgeous big girls. Uh, well, I captured them, yes. So where did they come from? Um, secret spot. Fair enough. So do you see many females that are that big? Um, well, you see females that big all the time, but we return them to the water, of course. But to catch them in migration season is always a bit of a challenge. They only move when they want to move, and conditions have to be right. And what are the right conditions? Plenty of rain. We're in a drought around here and we haven't had it this year. They're just waiting for the right conditions. They still haven't gone yet and they may not go for another month if we don't get the right conditions. But when they go, they'll all go at once. How can you tell they're about to migrate? Well, they develop certain characteristics, particularly around the eyes and the mouth and their colour. And um, quite easily to see, really, once you know what you're looking for. So are you curious to know where they're going to go? Yes, very curious. I just know that they tend to go up somewhere near uh, Norfolk Island and New Caledonia, is it? Yep, towards New Caledonia and Tonga is where sort of some of the original work showed they seem to be heading. So we'll find out if these girls go there as well or whether they keep on going even. What are they doing on the way there? Do we have any idea? We've got relatively limited data, but we can certainly see that they migrate up and down within the water column during the day. So they go down into the depths during the day and then they come up again closer to the surface at night. And when you say down to the depths, how deep? We've recorded them down to, I think it's a couple of hundred metres that they go down to. But they're not feeding down there? No, once they start their migration from the freshwater, they actually stop feeding and they don't feed for their entire journey out 
to the spawning ground, as far as we know. What information are your tags actually collecting? So the tags record three main things. One is the depth that the tag's at, one is the temperature, and another is it captures light. Now, we've found in the past that we often don't get much data on the light side of things because they tend to swim too deep in the water to actually get the daylight registered on the tags. What does the light tell you? Well, if you can capture the light information, it can help you to locate where the fish actually are based on the time of sort of sunrise and sunset. They can use that to locate longitude and latitude. So this might be a little problematic if they keep doing this deep daily diving. Yes, so we're, we're sort of relying on where the tag actually pops up because when it pops up to the surface after it releases from the eel, then it sends a signal back to a satellite to tell us exactly where it's come up to the surface. The other thing we have is that we've got the tag set to be released at different time intervals between five and eight months after the fish are released. And so if some sort of drop off a bit earlier in the journey and some a bit later on, it starts to give you a bit of an indication of where the pathway is that they're moving. So we're mid-ish May, so they might come up October, November, December? Yes, that sort of time, hopefully. We'll be keeping our fingers crossed for a nice Christmas present, I think, getting all of the data in. Paul says he's also looking forward to the first news about where shortfin eels spawn. We share this species with Australia and South America, and Australian researchers have just tagged some shortfin eels in South Victoria. We'll wait to hear news of where they get to. And I'm curious to see how deep our longfin eels dive as they migrate. Previous research has shown that migrating temperate eels spend a lot of time during the day in deep, cold water, around five to 900 metres down. At night, they come up into warmer, shallower water just one or 200 metres deep. Researchers think there may be several reasons for this. Avoiding getting eaten is one... Studies with northern hemisphere eels have shown that predation is a huge risk, with up to three-quarters of tagged eels getting munched en route. The female eels are also juggling temperature and pressure, trying to time when their ovaries mature. That's because they almost certainly don't breed until the year after they migrate, which I have to say is a very long time to go without food. On average temperate eels swim at about one kilometre an hour, which means they cover maybe 24 or so kilometres a day. Slow ones travel as little as 2 k's a day, while others sprint at more than 50 k's a day. European eels cross the entire Atlantic Ocean. At that average swimming speed, it'll take them seven months to cover 5,000 kilometres, and spare a thought for the Norwegian eels that swim up to 9,000 kilometres to reach the Sargasso Sea. Even if our longfin eels aren't swimming quite that far, they're still swimming more than 2,500 kilometres. They leave here in May, and the first glass eels come back in August, which is not enough time for mum to swim there, spawn, and have her tiny larvae drift back in the same year. All really interesting. Now let's go back to the eel tagging. The team have tagged nine females. Previous research has shown that migrating longfin eels spend a couple of days 
hanging out in the lower reaches of the Waikato River to adjust to the rising salinity before they head off. So the team has added some salt to the water in the eel's travelling tank to begin that process of acclimating to salty seawater. We arrive at the mouth of the Waikato just on dusk, and everyone gets ready, including getting a rather noisy drone airborne to film proceedings from above. So we've arrived in Port Waikato. You're all putting your waders on. Yes, we're putting our waders on so we can probably sink in up to our necks in the mud down the edge there as we release the fish. So we're, what, about a kilometre or so from the, from the, the sea? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It looks like they can sort of slowly slide out into the current, the outgoing current, and swim into the ocean and hopefully continue for a couple of hundred days until we hear from them again. Sun is going down now, so usually they are nocturnal, so they will dominantly move at night. So that means they've got a full night to start off on. I think that's really good, actually. How are your eels looking, Paul? Looking OK at the moment. Okay. So your first one's gone? So, yes, first one is gone. So we're just going to gradually take these out one by one. They're swimming away strongly? Yes, they are. They're in good spirit. It's just ready to go. So we're down to the final fish. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. They wanted out, didn't they? <laughs> yep, they certainly did. So hopefully they're now off on their way. And we have to wait a few months now to see what information we get back but it's an exciting time to finally get to this point where we've released them. Based on their behaviour when we release them, I think they're swimming. They're on the way out there, full speed. Let's hope so. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That was Paul Franklin from Niwa, and we also heard Kim Arastrup from the Technical University of Denmark. And Paul reports that they are tagging and releasing Waikato eel number 10 this week. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, one of New Zealand's most important fossil sites is at risk of being mined for animal feed. Folden Ma is a 23-million-year-old volcanic crater near Middlemarch in inland Otago that was once a lake. Daphne Lee is a paleontologist at the University of Otago and she has been working at Folden Ma for many years. Back in 2009, Veronica Maduna joined Daphne and geologist John Linkfist at the site. Well, we're standing here in the middle of what was once a Ma crater. Um, we're um, in the general region of Middlemarch and we're surrounded by schist. So if we look at the horizon in all directions, there's schist and there's tors and tors sticking up out of the present day hills and then in the distance though you can see the flat topped hills those are actually covered by a a lava flow a basalt lava flow so there's a lot of evidence for volcanic activity around here and if we stood up a little bit higher we could look over there and we could see the volcanic rocks just on the edge of the crater that we dated which gave us the 23.2 million year age we've probably had quite a lot of erosion here we've maybe lost the top 50 or even 100 meters um, so there may have been a much well there probably 
initially was a much thicker deposit. And so you can see that we're, we're now in a depression, which is where the upper layers of the diatomite have been eroded away. So we're effectively standing on the bottom of the lake about halfway through its life history, if that makes sense. As soon as you get an eruption that forms a very deep hole in the ground like this one, it would have started filling up with water immediately. So the um, laminated sediments we expect to find right at the bottom will be the first formed ones. And it probably took somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 years for the lake to completely fill up, given that it's just entirely organic sediment rather than you know silt or sand or something being washed in. There were no rivers um, draining into this lake. It was a closed system completely. I imagine it is a quite a calm system. Very quiet, I should think. Not yes. too much disturbance. In no, perhaps a bit of wind on the surface, but otherwise very quiet and anoxic at the bottom and so on. And uh, we can see where John has been chainsawing and you get this wonderful um, black and white or dark and light barcoding. And you can see that the layers are tilted too. They would have originally been absolutely horizontal, you know, right from one side of the lake to the other. And uh, there's been a bit of subsidence that's kind of tilted them down and maybe a little bit of faulting as well. So I'm just digging away at this uh, unit. It's quite soft, easily to uh, dig. Quite, quite a pleasure in itself. What we're looking at there is the um, diatomite deposit that filled the Ma Lake. It looks very finely laminated. In fact, you know, each of the layers looks almost like paper thin. Is that what you'd expect to find? Oh, yes. It was a very quiet environment and quite deep. So uh, what we're looking at there are the thin laminae, probably seasonal, formed one about uh, half a millimetre thick per year or thinner. And each of those, we think, was laid down during one um, winter and summer uh, annual event. And mostly organic material falling from the surface of the lake? Oh, yeah. Was there the, anything um, else in it? The thicker units, you see them here, that's one about uh, 8 millimetres thick. And here, further down, they get up to around 15 centimetres. They are actually formed from um, mass, what we call mass flow deposits, when the material that was accumulating towards the margins of the lake, now and again there would have been a failure of the sediment, and it basically uh, took off as a slurry, formed a slurry and spread out right across the um, floor of the lake and settled out quite quickly. And you see in the top of each of these units there's a white layer, mm-hmm. very white layer, about um, four or five millimetres in thickness. And here's another one down here, above a um, two centimetre thick black layer. Well, there, that's probably the um, remains of the very late stage flow, the material that was... Um, suspended right through the water column of the lake and then dropped out after each of those um, mass flow events. If I imagine you're obviously looking for fossils of plants and insects, so a leaf at the time would have fallen on the surface of the lake and then just settled on one of those layers, would Mm -hmm. it have to have been covered pretty quickly for it to be preserved? Well, we see two types. We see the leaf material in these um, mass flow units. They contain a lot of organic material and also just the odd leaf and the laminated beds, it probably just very slowly sank to the lake floor. And um, by that stage, when it got down there, there was very little oxygen. So it just sat there until it was covered by um, succeeding layers of um, diatomaceous mud. It's been a bit of rain lately, and it all seems a bit softer than perhaps usual, but even on a normal day, to me, it feels like cardboard. It's not really rock or anything that... 
that you've got here. It's pretty soft material. They use the term uh, for this material diatomaceous earth. It's a very finely porous structure. It's quite moist here at the moment. If you dried it out, it would have a density of about um, 0.35. It actually floats when it's dried out. It's the least dense rock on a par with coal. Really. So you describe it as rock, though? In a broad sense, uh, yeah. It's more rock than earth, uh, just because it's old, it's ancient, really. Without John's chainsaw, we wouldn't have found the really nice fossils that we've found in the last um, few years. So it's almost like having the sediment barcoded, so you can, you know, like... It literally looks like a barcode. It does look like a barcode, yes. And I guess from a fossil hunter's perspective, those blocks are quite handy too. Yes, they're brilliant because um, John cuts out columns that are about a metre high and and then those of us with our um, knives and things um, start uh, splitting the layers. In particular, we're interested in what's on the white layers, which are the summer layers. And on some of those, we found entire fish um, beautifully preserved because, as John said before, the, the bottom of the lake was anoxic and so there was no decay um, and nothing came and ate the, the fish you know, bodies and so on. And so there they are, fins and everything, um, still as they were um, in life. Fulden Ma has also produced about 250 remarkable insect fossils, as well as plenty of plants that botanist Jennifer Bannister has been working to identify. I visited Daphne and Jennifer back in 2012 to find out more about the plant fossils. We actually have a, an annual record of about 120, maybe 130,000 years. This is a very, very unusual um, lake deposit. An annual record is extraordinary. Absolutely. And so what we have is 23 million years ago an extraordinarily diverse flora. So what does that tell us? I don't think at 23 million years we were drowned. <laughs> No, I would agree with that. And all our colleagues who've looked at, the, looked at this um, would agree. This is an amazingly rich flora. Many of the plants are insect pollinated, the fruits are bird dispersed and so on. It looks as if it's had a long history in New Zealand. Yes, this is one of the monocot leaves that we have. It's a cordyline, and they often come in sort of bits. We've got the base there, and we've got a middle piece here. And one of the first ones we found was just actually a sheet of cuticle that was blowing away, so I had to save bits. Cordelini is something like a cabbage tree? Yes, a cabbage tree. All the leaves, of course, were dropped in from the forest that surrounded the lake, so we know that these were growing in the forest. We've also found that it's a Loraceae forest. The most numerous leaves are from the Loraceae, and the most numerous leaf is one of the Loraceae, and we have ten species and some flowers as well. So in a lot of cases, we are linking the flowers with the leaves. And the really interesting thing about that is Loraceae pollen does not preserve. And so if we were using the pollen record alone, we wouldn't have had any idea what it was really like. So the combination of the leaves and the fruit and flowers and so on and the pollen gives us a really amazing picture of what the vegetation was like. Yes. The vegetation is very rich in, indeed. If I start from the bottom, we've got three ferns, three conifers, uh, about eight monocots, and then I've got about 60 taxa of dicots, the angiosperms, and they range from canopy to understory to uh, um, ground flora. So uh, also climbers, we've got lianes there, and ripogonum, which is known in New Zealand at the moment, supplejack, mm-hmm. yes. And a lot of them, we're either finding a flower and a leaf, 
or fruits and leaves because we've got Laurelia-type leaves with beautiful Laurelia-type fruits as well. If we were back there, what kind of forest would we be walking through? You'd have to go now to southern Queensland to find something that was similar. Half of the plants would be somewhat similar to things that we have living in New Zealand today, and the other half would be things which are no longer living here, things which require much warmer climate. So we think this was a subtropical environment. It is described as a rainforest, as a simple notophyll vine forest, which is one of the classifications that Webb used for the Australian rainforests. So the trees would have been dripping with epiphytes, there would have been orchids and so on, probably would have been quite difficult to walk through. None of the species are identical to species that live today. I mean, we're talking about 23 million years ago. We think that a lot of these are ancestors to what we have in New Zealand today. Thanks, Daphne. That was paleontologist Daphne Lee. And we also heard from botanist Jennifer Bannister and geologist John Lingfist, and they are all at the University of Otago. Former Prime Minister Helen Clark this week put her weight behind the fight to save the crater from being mined, and you can find out more about these efforts on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll also find a new episode of the Kākāpō Files there. It's been a tough week for the Kākāpō team. Following on from the death last week of two adult males, four chicks have also died. A number of other birds are currently being treated for the fungal disease aspergillosis. The number of adult kakapo is now 144 and there are 73 living chicks. The chemistry podcast Elemental is up to dysprosium and erbium. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Pai Topo.